Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Parl Sagal, a book critic at The New York Times. Prior to becoming one of the paper's full-time regular critics last year, she was an editor at the Times Book Review. She received her MFA from Columbia University prior to that. I wanted to talk to her about a bunch of things today, including the state of book reviewing and cultural criticism, as well as spring books more generally. Parl Sagal joins me now from Slate Studios in New York after declining numerous invitations to come on the podcast over <laughs> the past several months. Parl, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Isaac. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you're, you have a job that I think um, a lot of people would uh, describe as a dream job, or at least mm-hmm. dorky people like myself or people who, who listen to this podcast, surely, which is you review books full time. So what is, what is the day like in the life of a person who reviews books for The New York Times full time? Yeah, it's constant panic and guilt and shame. Um, also pajamas. Um, no, it is. It's a great. It's a great gig. I'm not going to lie. Like it's, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of writing, um, and it's a lot of just trying to catch up and also trying to see what other people are reading and writing. So, yeah, it's monkish. But if you are into that sort of thing, it's it's bliss. Um, yeah, but I mean, with that, like with that, there there is a feeling, and I think what propels me is also a feeling of responsibility, you know, and is also a feeling of of working in a very strange genre in that when you write a book review, right, and the book reviews we write at the Times are about, you know, roughly 800 to 1,000 words, you're serving a lot of masters. You know, you're, you're trying to uh, sort of introduce a, a book and, and sometimes even a whole cultural conversation to somebody who's just picking up the paper. And at the same time, you want to reach people that are well-versed in the subject matter and caught up in the debate. Um, And at the same time, you're serving other masters, too. You know, you are sort of thinking about literature more broadly. You're thinking about the writer. You're thinking about your own tastes. So, I mean, it's a lot to do in a a small amount of space. You know, um, my, my favorite quote about criticism comes from Zoe Heller from her book, uh, Notes on a Scandal. And she says that, you know, kissing is trying to be creative in a small space. And I, and I <laughs> for me, that's, 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 what, that's, that's what criticism can feel like on a, on a good day, like kissing. So the, you said trying to su- serve multiple masters, I think uh-huh. was the phrase you used. Do you find that that, how does that manifest itself in choosing books as well as um, reviewing them? Because I would imagine the process by which you and your editors at the Times decide which three or four books are going to be part of the the weekly review rotation is also something where you feel like you have to serve multiple audiences, you have to work with publishers. So what is that process like? I know you're one of three critics. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it feels to me um, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of balancing your own curiosity, but at the same time serving serving the reader you know it's 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 maybe sound like silly to to put it this way but I do sometimes think about my job as an act of care for the reader you know you are sort of trying to think about I do think about somebody opening the paper who um, is just wondering what to read or trying to catch up on what's going on with the novel or what are people um, saying in this particular corner of the world about health or whatever so you you, I, I do try to channel um just a, a broader sense of 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 curiosity and and try to think outside of my own taste which can be really difficult but can be exciting. Okay, so get, what would that what does that mean in practice trying to think outside of your own taste not just reviewing books that you're comfortable with? Or, yeah, or what? yeah, totally. Or or not even and sometimes even even just saying that you know um Again, because it's also it's really hard to choose a book. So for every book we choose, and I wonder, and I'm sure like Dwight Garner and Jennifer Sly feel the same way. Like so, every book we choose, you know, whether 
so many books that we're not going to be able to cover that week. But, you know, sometimes, um, you, you know, it's it's sort of a, a sense of, well, this is important. Or, oh, if, you know, if I were a reader, I would want to know about this particular debate or issue. So, for example, like this week, I ended up reviewing three books about um, women's health and, and more specifically the sort of crisis that's happening um, that a lot of people are reporting on and writing about from different angles. And that doctors don't believe women. Women will come into the doctor and it doesn't matter how they present. They can be they can be talking about almost any kind of pain or any kind of issue. They can be emotional or they can be stoic. And they're not being listened to. They're not they're not being heard. And, you know, aside from that, like women haven't been studied. All most medical tests have been done on men and pain tests have been done on men. So this is this huge issue that a lot of people have been talking about for a very long time. And this week I happened to notice that there were these three very sort of different books coming out that came at this topic from different angles. And that just felt important, you know. And obviously, like, health isn't, you know, health and medicine aren't my specific, you know, um, specialties. But I did want to come at these books and come at this issue the way a common reader might, you know, and to speak as, as you know, to the common reader and as a common reader about what is happening, what are these books saying, what is the broader conversation. Do you feel that when you're writing about a topic that, let's say, you have more expertise on that you don't want to talk to the reader as another common reader, but you want to talk to them from some area of expertise or... I have no expertise. Know. I have no expertise. Come on. Okay. Come on. You know no, what I like, mean, though. No, but, but, like, no, areas that I feel like in in every review, I, I, you know, best case scenario, want to have done enough work where I do feel like I, what I have to say is interesting and valuable to people more well-versed in it as well as making the review seem accessible and friendly enough and just giving somebody coming to it enough grounding to say this is these are the like the sort of contours of the dis- this discussion like obviously that's best case scenario when you can make those two extremely different people at all happy but that's always the goal I read an, an interview with you a while ago where you said that you try to read every book that you review two or three times yeah. um is that still possible when you're reviewing as much as you are now yeah, but I'm learning how to skim. So <laughs> there's there's definitely I do try to read it a few times. And I do think that the first the first time you read the book as a critic is the most important. And um, because you're coming to the book the way that anybody is coming to the book. And so I think sort of sorting through your cluster of impressions um and sort of like, you know, first impressions and the way that it's rubbing you this way and that way is very important. And it's important to be sensitive to that. But I do. Yeah, I do try to get in there um, a couple of times as much as possible. I want to ask to slightly switch gears for a second, which is that um, as I'm sure your colleagues at the newspaper who uh, review movies rather than books have been talking about and writing about um, around the office as well as I'm sure in the newspaper have been talking about sort of the post-Harvey Weinstein moment in Hollywood and how to evaluate uh, movies through the lens of people like Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey or whoever it is who's been involved in a lot of bad behavior and how to uh, then examine their art. This discussion seems like it has not really shifted to books yet. Uh, maybe that's maybe it will uh, at some point, but it feels like, right. broadly speaking, it hasn't. Although at various times around writers, you know Ezra Pound or whoever else, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Uh, it's sparked up at various times in in history. And I, I was wondering, sort of, as someone who I would imagine mm. reads more books than you see movies or watch television shows, how you feel about that. And I, I, I guess you're someone who is interested in literary history and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can look back through the lives of a lot of the writers we uh, admire. And, you know, they're not all George Eliot. They're not all these kind of admirable people who 
we would love to uh, marry our sons or daughters or whatever else. And so how, how do you think about reading books, particularly fiction, um, from yeah, people that, who yeah. are uh, can be grotesque? Yeah, I mean, so you had a great interview with Tony Scott in which he just he said something that I think we all feel, but he just put it very basically and perfectly. And he says, like, you know, the job of the critic is judgment and judgment always has a moral and ethical dimension. Always. So, I mean, again, like nobody I mean, it feels jejun to sort of come in as a critic and sort of, you know, subject the work of art you know, to gossip or to this or to that. But at the same time, when we sit down and we sort of say that this work of art exists, this character exists, we are making these judgments and we are looking at and, and always implicitly thinking about what this work art of art says about how to live and and all of these things. And I and I don't know, for, for me, the kind of criticism that I, I really do respond to, um, be it from you know, for example, the art critic Michael Kimmelman or Elizabeth Hardwick um, really does fold in the life in a way that I find very interesting and and and, and feels like part of the job and responsibility of, of good criticism. You know, I mean, I think that this idea that some people have that the art is separate from from life has always been confusing to me. And um I think that it's it's uh the kind of criticism that I I, I keep going back to does really look at um, how life informs the art and art informs the life. And, you know, these are these are books that are being made by people who, you know, live with particular material circumstances and are in the bodies that they are and have access to whatever they do and they have the children they do and they live in the country and time period. And all of that feels endlessly interesting to me. And I don't feel like thinking about these sorts of things necessarily makes your criticism reductive or makes you not take the work as seriously or actually look at the sentences and listen to the rhythms and think about the imagery. One doesn't preclude the other, I think is what I'm trying to say. Right. I mean, but to to go to what you said, I mean, it seems like that you could have the attitude that sort of the art informs the life and the life informs the art, as you mm-hmm. said, which seems sort of undeniable, that we could accept that, but also still feel that as readers, we should still try to judge things somewhat independently. Why? Well, I guess that I would say that, um, well, I think that there are two ways of, of of looking at this. One is to say that if you take a writer, I'm trying to think who would be a good example, uh, mm-hmm. Dickens or someone, or V.S. Naipaul, who... Uh, in both cases, I think are pretty monstrous people. And I think that by looking at them as monstrous people, you can actually view their work and say it's it enriches the work to know something about them as a person, understand where they're coming from, and understand how complex they, them as very, they as very complex people put their work out. However, I, th- that I think is very valuable and it's the way I would like to read literature. However, I, I do worry that if, you know... There's another kind of thing that operates on my subconscious or even conscious, which is conscious, which is that, you know, I read an article about Dickens saying that, you know, Indians should be fired out of cannons if mm-hmm. they resist mm-hmm. British rule. And that therefore, when I read, you know, A Tale of Two Cities, I'm just not thinking about the book in the same yeah. way. And I don't know entirely how valuable that latter thing is. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I, I think that, like, I don't worry about this for me. And I think that part of this is as, you know, a woman, an Indian, a queer. Like, I've gotten very good. Like, I have a lot of practice at being like, I want to enjoy your work, and yet you say these monstrous, abhorrent things. Like, I've gotten good at that sort of, you know, balancing all of that in my brain at the same time. And I think that 
I, I, I really don't like readings or criticism that reflexively dismisses a writer. Um, but I, I really do think that uh, a lot of the criticism that's really interesting to me, and not even criticism in books, but for example, like certain kinds of criticism that are happening in museums, right? Just, you know, showing a work of art by an artist, but saying like, well, how do we, can we just give the viewer this information about them and make it their responsibility? That's the kind of stuff I like. And I think that readers are smart. I think that viewers are smart. I think that um, everybody's going to have their own complicated relationship to this sort of stuff. But then also, I think that this conversation about, as you say, like it's been happening a lot around movies and and I know that the art world is having this too. Um, but it also seems to exist in a vacuum as if this isn't something that people do all the time in their private lives. Like we don't have people that have hurt horribly people that we know or ourselves and at the same time respect them but fear them, feel traumatized. Like we're, This is something that I, I feel is is very part of the part of human experience, you know, and yet it's getting talked about as if this is something absolutely new and we don't have a vocabulary for it. We're not able to do it. We don't have, um, and that it's something that's going to be settled when in actuality, I think the really interesting energy around all of this stuff is in thinking through it. So one of my, my, you know, a, a piece I loved was actually the Tony Scott about Woody Allen, where he just sort of, he, he talks through it and he, he's sort of thinking, through all of the sort of valences of what it means to love this filmmaker and 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 to s- sit with the fact that, well, why wasn't I harder on him? And was I right not to be hard on him? And what does it mean to look at his work now that, you know, these allegations, you know, his daughters published this op-ed and all of this, this, this sort of more momentum is behind these, these um, uh, charges against him. And I, that's the kind of criticism I think that you don't see very often, but feels very valuable to me. It's interesting, though, to think about like our current moment, especially now compared to 200 years ago or something where now when we kind of engage with a work of art, I think I think for a lot of people there, I mean, I think there are probably readers or viewers who are not like this, but for a lot of people, they're engaging with it and they kind of know everything about it. And so not everything about it, but they know many things about it. They've read a piece in The New York Times about it. They've seen their favorite movie star on Jimmy Fallon talking about the creation of the movie. They've, you know, they've watched a behind the scenes documentary or YouTube clips about how something was was made. And to think about sort of and I think, you know, I think most people who pick up a Jonathan Franzen book have some idea who Jonathan Franzen is. And that to me is so interesting to think about, you know, 150 years ago when for a while, you know, George Eliot was writing things and nobody had any clue who she was, if she was a she, you know, and engaging with a work like that. I I, I agree with you that there's a certain richness to engaging with everything about the artist, but I do in a way kind of miss that. Like, oh, here's a book. And sometimes you do get it. Sometimes you read a first novel of someone, you don't know anything about them. And there's something about that that I find uh, equally, or maybe not equally, but also enriching and and it does feel like our culture that we've lost something there. I don't believe you. I think that this still happens to you. I think it happens to me. I think that when you read something that is so good uh, and, and so strange and so surprising, who the author is or what you even thought about the author doesn't matter. And I know this just because this this happened to me and that I read um, actually came very late to Jonathan Franzen. And I, and I read the corrections and I just I was blown away. Not that I didn't have issues with it, but I had all of these opinions about Jonathan Franzen and had quite negatively reviewed one of his books and, you know, but I hadn't read this particular book and I was just shocked at how much I, um, how much I loved it and how all of that did fall away, you know, and I do think that that happens. And I do think that that, um, for those of us who are readers, 
and and the particular nature of what reading feels like that kind of burrowing intimate feeling when you're in a book i think it still happens and i think i know all of this is to say is i agree with you i think it is one of the best feelings how much reading are you able to do that's not either a book you're reviewing or something you're reading as kind of you know supplementary reading for something you're reviewing I try to I try to do as much as possible. I mean, it's it is difficult. That's because, not an answer, Paul. <laughs> I'm I'm weaseling my way out. <laughs> um, you know, but I really don't have that many other interests, Isaac. I mean, I didn't really watch that much TV until I discovered Fleabag last week. I'm late on everything in life. I'm late. I'm so late. I have like a pile of books to read and a toddler to raise. But I do try to I do try to um, uh, read as I I do try to read as much as possible, and that does mean that like. You know, I'm I'm not reading a lot of newer stuff sometimes. Like, and I I'm trying to be. I mean, you and I actually talked about this like a year ago, um, and we were talking about getting our news from papers in the morning. Do you remember that? And this no, is something that you. Oh, no, this is something that you said you do, where you just try to read the newspaper every morning. And uh, Farhad Manju, the the tech. Uh, a uh, great tech reporter at the Times has had a piece about this, about how it's just it saves time. You actually get news in a considered more comprehensive way than just like snacking at news all day long. So that's something that I'm trying to do just to read the paper every morning and then step away from the the constant stream of information and opinion. Um, and, and with that time, I'm, you know, I'm trying to read and I'm trying to read a lot more criticism. I'm trying to read older stuff like older, um, older reviews and stuff like that. I'm triggering. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what makes a review last, I think. Have you thought of anything about now, given that you mentioned that about sort of the era we're in in terms of criticism? Um, mm. How good it, do you think it is, or not good? Uh, I mean, it, it seems to me that the it's this weird kind of um, I don't want to say paradox, but it's this mm. weird thing where it feels like the sort of regular newspapers are there's less and less books criticism, and that's really depressing. But there's also on the internet, at least, there are a lot of places for smart criticism. So it is that that strange paradox, but um, well, you tell me because I feel like I'm very in it. Like, what do you what what do you feel about criticism right now? Do you read a lot of book criticism or no? Yeah, but I don't uh-huh. know if I'm normal. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's <laughs> the producer is shaking her head. <laughs> uh, well, in your producer, studio. yeah, the producer in Slate. Yeah, I know, I know who that is shaking her head. Um, I know. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, I think I think that you know I, I I do think though overall that the the decline of major newspaper book reviews and book criticism and the shrinking spaces for magazine criticism in the major magazines has really wounded wounded it. Yeah, I mean again yeah. there are, are all kinds of places online where you can find smart smart criticism, but um, maybe just by what I read, I, I notice that and the places that I typically enjoyed getting criticism from seem um seem smaller but maybe i'm yeah. old fashioned no i think i think i agree i think that i think what i do miss in criticism right because there are less places to publish and i think that makes people nervous i think that i i miss style i miss critics that had a sort of voice and and perspective i think that people are careful and and judicious which is not a bad thing but I, th- there's something about um you know, when I go back and I read, for example, um, you know, like criticism, especially like, I mean, obviously Martin Amos is not like an ordinary example, but I do read some of the stuff that was like, you know, coming out earlier and it just felt more voicey, more brazen, a little bit more um, just free. 
and 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 sort of like that idea that old like Virginia Woolf idea that you have to sign your you sign your name with style like it's actually not your byline it's like your style is your byline and I miss that a little bit I, I you know I, it's it's hard for me to name a lot of critics right now who I'm like you, you know younger critics who I'm like oh that's a very distinct style it's a very distinct voice you know and I think that that's you know function of the fact that there aren't a ton of places to to play and practice and pay you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, every time there's a really mean book review, people sort of talk. I mean, some people love it. Some people say that the culture is getting too mean. But I I think with book criticism, which has always been the case, that it's actually too nice. And that the truth is, is that people bend over backwards to be nice. And um, and I get it because people work really hard on books and it's not fun to be mean um, or it's usually not fun to be mean. But I generally think that the culture of book reviewing remains that essentially people people are not stylistically kind of examining the flaws and things uh, in fun and creative ways and that and that people are are still much too nice and bend over backwards to to not be mean. Well, right. And I think that's why people talk about negative reviews in this way, because it's I mean, it, it can feel like a substitute for style. Like this is at least somebody uh, showing you something, even though like, you know, disgust and censure are very easy emotions to perform on the page. So um, but it's interesting, like just going back to what I was saying about like what reviews last and the critics that last. And you go back and you think about, you know, who really matters and why they matter. And like Sontag and Hardwick and, and the people that we still talk about and we still th- read and or at least I read and think about matter because of their enthusiasms, not what they came down on. They mattered because they introduced new people. They championed them. They gave people a vocabulary to enjoy people. And that that kind of you can call it service or you can call it that kind of talent, that kind of gift that that in for me in the long run feels really rare and feels really exciting. Before we go, I, uh, I came across a quote from yours in, a, in another old interview, uh, oh, which, no. you, uh, which I was hoping you would follow up on. You said you're talking about growing up and you said books were a highly controlled substance yeah. <laughs> in my childhood home. What uh, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I, I grew up with incredibly strict parents and very strict parents with a very idiosyncratic library. My mother had a terrific, terrific library full of Jean Genet and Sidney Sheldon and what else do you need? Like it was just this place of deviance and craziness and we were never allowed to go in there. And um, and yeah, so my sister and I became the most sort of frenetic little book thieves you can imagine. And yeah, books were never, they were never spinach in my house. It was never like, oh, you know, we're so happy to see you reading. It was always like, no, do your work. Do your, do this, you know, study, study, study. I mean, my people are partition era refugees, you know, so they have a, that particular kind of, um, governed by that particular kind of anxiety and all of these things. But where yeah, was this was house just, that you're talking about? This was in, this was outside of DC, but this was also in Delhi. And, uh, so for for me growing up, like it was just glamorous, like it was just glamorous and it was also mine. And I think that, you know, I didn't really until I you know got my MFA, didn't wasn't really interested in studying literature. I wasn't really interested in hearing anybody else's opinion about it. It was always this um, this thing that felt uh, nocturnal. It happened at night. It was private. It was stolen. It was, um, yeah, the, it was just the glamour of it. I mean, and I still feel it. I still feel like the... Uh, that's still where, for me, the uh, exciting thinking, the the shocking stuff still happens, you know, for better or for worse. So for me there. Do you uh, – the reason I brought it up is because I feel like in your writing you often try to um, sort of highlight what is mysterious or kind of 
secretive or magical about literature and mm. um I, w- I was wondering if you think that kind of the secretive nature that books took on in your childhood imagination had some role in that whether whether it's a good thing or not totally totally and i think that plus like i mean and i think that like all people who read with a particular kind of obsessiveness it, there's something wrong with them something has happened to them <laughs> that you're really choosing this you're choosing this place to go in this particular way and i think that um you know when i when i got older i really do think that you know um you know my family moved around a lot and we lived in places sometimes where we were not welcome and i think that there were certain experiences of childhood racism and childhood uh alienation that books were a safe place they were a safe place to encounter the world they were the place to go they were the place that you would be accepted and there were the places to peer in at places that were and at people that were keeping you out so there it always felt um uh, subversive always it always felt like even like it always felt like there it was a place and it was access to consciousnesses and 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 places that i was not supposed to be going to and i wasn't supposed to have and that always felt really really exciting right i mean safe and subversive is kind of a it's a pretty cool combination of i mean what word. else what else is there uh what does your family think of your uh, your reviews now I don't know. In fact, you made a career of it. (laughs) I think that I I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that I mean, I think that they are are moved in the sense that, you know, my my grandmothers were married as teenagers. Right. They didn't. I think one of my grandmothers was actually illiterate, you know, and learned taught herself to read later. So I think that the fact that I have a life of the mind in this particular way or can is very moving to them. I don't know if they um more than that, I don't know. I don't know if there is anything more than that. I think that the sheer historical fact that, you know, you can have a, in one generation, you can have this kind of development, you know, or this kind of shift feels shocking and great. Parl Sagal is a book critic at the New York Times. You can read her every week in the art section of the paper. Parl, thank you so much for finally, I'm going to enunciate that, finally <laughs> coming on the program. Never again, never again. Bye, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for additional help from June Thomas at Slate in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Slate Money is a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the world of business and finance, featuring Felix Salmon, Slate's Moneybox columnist Jordan Wiseman, and political risk consultant Anna Szymanski. Find it every Saturday morning wherever you get your podcasts.